Good morning, Faith family. I am excited to be leading us in our study of God's Word this morning. We're going to be looking together at Psalm 126. So if you want, go ahead and take out your Bibles or open your Bible apps and go ahead and navigate there again, Psalm 126. I hope you all had a very Merry Christmas this past Tuesday. I know that my family and I certainly did. We, we've somehow managed to have two Christmases in a row where we haven't had to leave our house on Christmas Day, much less our pajamas. We've just been able to relax, hang out together, no obligations, no demands on us. And you know, I don't know how long we're going to be able to keep that up, but I'm committed to trying to maintain it in future years. You know, when it comes to our celebrations of Christmas, I believe that we all fall somewhere on a spectrum between two extremes. On one end of this spectrum are people that I call buddies, you know, after Buddy the Elf. These are the people who begin counting down to Christmas come about August. You're the reason, if you're a buddy, that they keep putting out the decorations earlier and earlier each year. That's who you are. And then over on the other end of the spectrum, are people that I call Grinches, after, of course, the Grinch who stole Christmas. And for these people, it's not necessarily that they don't like Christmas. It's just that all the hustle and the bustle of the season becomes much more of, you know, an irritation than really a celebration. And I bet if we did a poll in here this morning that we would have a lot more buddies present than Grinches. But if I'm honest with y'all, I have to tell you that I kind of lean towards this Grinch end of the spectrum. I mean, I love Christmas, I do, but the busyness of the season is just so annoying to me. It's so stressful to me, and it often becomes a distraction that really keeps me from being able to get into the Christmas spirit. I often need help doing that. And one of the things that proves to help me the most is music, you know, Christmas music specifically. And I actually think regardless of where you fall on that spectrum between buddies and Grinches, Christmas music is something that helps all of us to get into the right spirit for our Christmas celebrations. After all, if you're a buddy, then you probably already live by his well-known proverb that the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. But then even with the Grinch, it was music that ended up bringing him around, Remember what happened after he snuck into Whoville and supposedly stole everyone's Christmas? Well, let me remind you. 3,000 feet up, up the side of Mount Crumpet, he rode with his load to the tip top to dump it. Poo-poo to the who's, he was grinchishly humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up, I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two. Then the who's down in Whoville will all cry, boo-hoo. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. So he paused, and the Grinch put his hand to his ear. And he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low, then it started to grow. But the sound wasn't sad. Why, this sound sounded merry. It couldn't be so, but it was merry. Very. He stared down at Whoville. The Grinch popped his eyes. Then he shook. What he saw was a shocking surprise. Every Who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. 
And if you've seen one of the three film adaptations of this story, then you know the song the Who's were singing. It began, fa, who, fa, raise, da, who, do, raise. Now, I have no idea what those words are supposed to mean. But they obviously meant something very meaningful indeed because we all know what happened then. Well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. That's the effect that music can have on us. That's the effect that especially Christmas music can have on us. We listen to these songs year in and year out, over and over throughout the holiday season because they not only help us to celebrate Christmas, they help to get us in the right mood to celebrate Christmas. Now, I bring this up because today we're obviously going to be looking at a psalm, one of the songs of the Bible, but we are looking at a song, part of a particular, a special grouping of songs that are called the Psalms of Ascent. And to help us understand just what the Psalms of Ascent are, I want to read a brief verse from Deuteronomy 16. So this is Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. All your males are to appear three times a year before the Lord your God in the place he chooses, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of shelters. No one is to appear before the Lord empty-handed. So here all of God's people, all the men and their families, they're commanded to travel to a place of God's choosing three times a year to celebrate, celebrate three special festivals. And the place that God chose for this celebration to happen was Jerusalem, the holy city, which was situated atop a mountain. And even more specifically than that, the place that God chose to have these celebrations was the temple that was on a mount within the city of Jerusalem, sitting on top of a mountain, Mount Zion. And so three times a year, all of God's people would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the temple, and they would therefore ascend As they approached the city, they would actually have to go up the mountain. Even if they already lived in Jerusalem, they would have to ascend up the temple mount to the temple for their times of worship. And as they ascended toward the city and the temple, they would sing together these psalms of ascent. These were the road trip playlists for their journey. They were basically their festival carols that they sung year in and year out over and over because it not only helped them to celebrate these festivals, but also helped to put them in the right mood for those celebrations. So in light of that, as we together ascend further toward God and our worship of him with his word, let's read together this Psalm of Ascent. So Psalm one. 26. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then, and our tongues with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord had done great things for us. We were joyful. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like watercourses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. Now, this is easily one of my most favorite 
opening lines in all of scripture. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. I mean, come on, does it get any better than that? It is such a strong opener. It's way better than something like, you know, once upon a time, which is essentially what this opening line is serving as. It's serving as the opening line of a story. Think about it. This is the most basic understanding. A story is just a series of events that are tied together and told with either words or images. You know, this happened, then this happened, then that happened, which made this happen, and then that happened, and so on and so forth. And that's what we have here in these first verses of Psalm 126. First, the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Then his people were like those who dream. Then their mouths were filled with laughter and their tongues with shouts of joy. Then the nations around them began noticing what God had done and they began saying among themselves, the Lord has done great things for them. That's the story that this psalm is commemorating. That it's calling on the people singing it to remember and to reflect upon. And the message of this story, the heart of it, it can be summed up in this way. God has redeemed and restored his people. God has redeemed and restored his people. Now, this is a story that God's people have heard more than once. In fact, they've heard this story over and over because it has occurred countless times in their history. It all started back in Egypt when they were captive slaves to Pharaoh and they cried out to God and God heard their cries and he came and he delivered them. He answered their prayers. He redeemed them. He recovered them. He brought them out of captivity to Egypt and he led them to the promised land, to the home that he had promised to their forefathers. But then once in the promised land, God's people entered into this vicious cycle where they would forget what God had done for them and they would sin and they would turn away from God. And so God would punish them by sending a people to come in and to oppress them and they would cry out to God and God would raise up a judge to redeem and deliver them and, to, and then would, would restore them to right relationship with him until they forgot the good things that God had done for them and they sinned and turned away from God and the cycle just went over again. It's just over and over and over throughout the book of Judges. Then when we get to the time of the kings, we have a few good years under the reigns of David and Solomon, but then the cycle picks up again and actually splits the kingdom into two until finally God sends the nation of Assyria to come in and to conquer the northern kingdom of kingdom of Israel and to take away its people into captivity. And then years later, he sends in the Babylonian empire to come in and to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah and to take away those people into captivity. And at that point in their history, things were about as bad as they had ever been since they had been slaves in Egypt. It was terrible. Jerusalem had been conquered, the temple had been destroyed, the walls had been knocked down, and all of God's people had been hauled away to be captives in a foreign land. And then 70 years later, 70 years after that, the Persian Empire came in, they conquered the Babylonians, and their ruler named Cyrus, he took a different approach. Instead of conquering people and deporting them, he decided to allow people to return to their homelands. And he even decided to directly support those returns by giving them resources. And his thinking was that this would help to build loyalty in those people. 
But Cyrus didn't do this because of his own cleverness. It wasn't his own you know, political machinations that made him institute this strategy. He was acting directly under God's sovereign direction. That Cyrus, the pagan king of Persia, was taking his orders from God himself. Let's look at verse 1 of this psalm again. It doesn't mention Cyrus at all. It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion... Now, what exactly does that mean? What did God do in restoring the fortunes? Well, I'm reading the CSB here, the Christian Standard Bible. That's the version I'm reading. And I have a little footnote here. And this footnote takes me down, and it shows me a different way of reading this first part of verse 1. And this different way of reading it is instead of saying, when the Lord returned the fortunes of Zion, it reads, when the Lord returned those of Zion who had been captives. And that's actually a reading that's more faithful to the way this is originally written in the Hebrew. When the Lord returned those of Zion who had been captives, that's what it meant for him to restore their fortunes. It didn't have anything to do with riches or blessing. It just had to do with him returning his people, with him redeeming them, freeing them from their captivity, and then restoring them, bringing them back to the home that he had given them. And he used Cyrus to do that. This was something that he had promised to do from long before. But this picture here, it's not a picture of God's people repenting, of them turning back to him and of him graciously receiving their repentance. It's not a picture of them being freed by a foreign power so that God might re-embrace them in his arms. That's not it at all. It's a picture of God actively at work bringing this all together. And in fact, an even more literal way to read this verse would be when the Lord turned the returning of those of Zion who had been captives. God was doing what he said he would do. But he wasn't just doing it. He was making it possible for it to be done. He was making it possible for them to be brought back. And then he was doing the bringing back. And he was doing that because, of course, he alone is the one who had the power to do those things. And that's wonderful news for us. That's wonderful news for us. We certainly know that that was wonderful news for God's people. After all, look at how they responded to it. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, when the Lord returned those of Zion who had been captives, we were like those who dream. When God did this, when he brought his people back out of exile, it was 200 years after Isaiah had prophesied that it would happen. And it was 70 years since they had initially been carried off into captivity. And when God finally followed through with his promise, when he did what he was said he was going to do, when he kept his word, they couldn't believe it was happening. It was like a dream. It was a pinch me moment. Think about in television shows or movies or even cartoons when there's a character and something so amazing, so wonderful, so awesome occurs to them that they just stand there in complete shock and turn to their companion and they say, pinch me. I must be dreaming. That's what God's people's reaction was. This is so wonderful. This is so amazing. This is so awesome. We must be dreaming. But of course, they weren't. They weren't. Though they thought that this was something that was too good to be true, they soon realized that it was both. It was both good and true. And as they realized what they thought was fantasy was actually reality, it gave way to ecstasy. They were so elated at what God had done, they just couldn't contain themselves. Look what it says. Their mouths were filled with laughter then, and their tongues with shouts of joy. 
I don't know if you've ever been to a surprise party before. I'm sure many of you have. And if you've been to a really good one, and what I mean by a good one is one where the guest of honor really honestly has no idea what's going to happen. They don't have any, even an inkling that this is coming. Then you've probably experienced a little something like what I'm going to describe. You know, you're there at the place of the party. You're all kind of awkwardly standing around waiting on the guest of honor to show up until someone's looking out the window. She finally like shout whispers, she's here, she's here. And everyone jumps and they start running and everyone hides real quick and makes sure the lights are off. And they're waiting for the door to open. And then the door to opens and the guest of honor comes in. Everyone stands up and they shout, surprise! And then what happens is the guest probably does something like this. They jump back, their mouth falls open, their eyes go big, they raise their hand up to their heart because it's suddenly beating faster than it's ever beat before. And then as they slowly recover, their open mouth turns into a smile and they start to laugh. That's all, their shock gives way to laughter. And that's a little bit like what God's people experienced. It was too good to be true. It was like a dream. They were shocked by what God had done. Though, of course, there was no reason they should have been. He had proved himself so faithful throughout their history, and yet it continued to surprise his people over and over again. But as they recovered from that shock, it gave way to moments of laughter, to shouts of joy, that they praised God for all that he had done. So we see here clearly that this was wonderful news for them. But it wasn't just wonderful news for them. It's also wonderful news for us because just as God redeemed and restored his people from their exile in Babylon, he also has redeemed and restored us. Think about it. In the Exodus, God's people were captives in Egypt. So he came to them. He freed them from their captivity. He entered into covenant with them and he brought them to their home, the promised land. Then in the exile, God's people were captives in Babylon. So he came to them, he freed them from their captivity, he renewed his covenant promises with them, and he brought them back to their ancestral home in the promised land. Well, then each of us, we have been captives too. Not captives in exile, but captives to sin, slaves to sin. But God didn't leave us there. He came to us. He literally, he came to earth. He came as a human, as a baby whose birth we just celebrated. He came here and he redeemed us. He literally paid the price for our sin, setting us free and restoring us into right relationship with him. And we now live in the new covenant with Christ. And he has set us off on a journey as sojourners in a foreign land on our way to our home that he has prepared for us in heaven to reign and rule with him forever. So the fact that God redeemed and restored his people wasn't just wonderful news for the nation of Israel. It's wonderful news for you and it's wonderful news for me. It's wonderful news for us too. But it's not just wonderful news for us, it's also that news that's potential news for anyone. It's potential news for anyone. What God did for his people in returning them from the exile, it's so wonderful. And they raised such a ruckus about it that all the pagan nations around them, all the people who did not worship God, they took notice of it and began to say among themselves, the Lord has done great things for them. 
Now, this isn't an example of them confessing faith in what God had done. They're simply recognizing it and rightly attributing the credit for it to the God of Israel, to the God of the people who had been redeemed. But the message was for them. Remember what God promised in his initial covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12, 2 and 3, he said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God blessed his people so that they might be a blessing in order for all peoples to be blessed through them. And just what was this blessing supposed to be like? Well, in Isaiah 42, God said these words through the prophet. I am the Lord. I have called you for a righteous purpose, and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the peoples and a light to the nations in order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. God blessed his people. He did great things for them so that they might tell all those around them about those great things. So that they might shine as a light and show them how they too could be redeemed and restored. How they too could be set free from the captivity of their sin. And he's continued that purpose, that mission forward today and he continues it with his people. It's not now the people of Israel, it's now the people in his church. We carry forth that, forth that purpose. We carry forth that mission. That's why we end all of our gatherings by saying go and make disciples of all nations. We carry the message for all peoples. God has redeemed and restored his people and he can do the same for you. The Lord has done great things and he can do great things in your life as well. So three times a year, year in and year out, God's people would recount this story and song as they approached Jerusalem for the festivals. And inevitably, that, they meant, that meant that this story would give way to a song. Now, this is a psalm, and as we've already said, that means that the whole thing is a song. But here in verse 3, we actually see them saying with their mouths what they're doing. They're saying with their words what they're doing with their lips. Think It's a little bit like what we just sang a few moments ago in the chorus of Great Are You, Lord. Remember what those words that we sang? We said, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. We were pouring out our praise by saying the words, we pour out our praise. That's what God's people are doing here in verse 3. It's just not super clear in this particular translation of the Bible that we're reading. You know, I love the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible version. I think it is super readable while also being very faithful to the original language and intent uh, of the scriptures. But this is a place where I just, I can't help but feel like it falls a little short. So I want us to compare what we read here in the CSB with what we can read as well in another translation in the ESV. So here in verse 3, God's people, they pick up the refrain of what the nations were saying. The nations were saying, the Lord has done great things for them. And then the CSB, we read, the Lord had done great things for us. But in the ESV, it sounds much more like what the nations were saying. The Lord has done great things for us. I think there's a massive difference between had and has. Had seems to put much too fine a point on it. It's something that was done in the past 
It's something God had done back then, which means not only was it done in the past, but it was completed in the past. There was no effect of it on the present. But in saying the Lord has done great things for us, it's still something that occurred in the past, but he has done it. There's some effect of it that's carried forward into the present that the people are still living in. They're still living in the experience of what the Lord did when he returned the captive ones of Zion. They're bringing that forward. The Lord not just had done great things, but he has done great things. There's still an effect for the people today. But then there's another difference here. You look at how they then responded to that. In the CSB, it reads, we were joyful. Again, something in the past. That's true. The Lord had done great things for them. When he restored the fortunes of Zion, they were like those who dreamed. Their mouths were filled with laughter. Their tongues with shouts of joy. They were joyful. But in the ESB, we read, we are glad. That's present. Something's in the present, and that's much more correct because the verb used there is in the present tense. These pilgrims are singing the song together, remembering what God has done, and they are joyful in it. They are glad in it. But then this is where I have to take up another issue, and it's, it's with that word glad. Because glad just seems like the LOL of word choice to me. You know, like when you text LOL to someone, rarely are you actually laughing out loud. Glad feels that way. Like when you say glad, you might use that word, but it might not necessarily mean that you actually feel that way or much less express it in some tangible way. Plus the word that's actually used here, it's a participle, which means a better way to say this is the Lord has done great things for us. We are rejoicing. And they were and singing the psalm together, God's people approaching the holy city in celebration of the festivals, they are rejoicing. And they're saying it. Not only are they doing it, they're saying it. They're saying what they're doing, and they're doing what they're saying. This is something that happens to us all the time. Like just this morning, think of the things that we've sung. You were the shepherd that carried us home. You paid the price for all our sin. You conquered death and made a way. You found me. You healed me. You called me from the grave. You gave me your real love. You washed my sins away. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. We confess in our own singing, in our own rejoicing, the Lord has done great things. We echo what the pilgrims were doing when they sung and they're rejoicing. And we rejoice not just for one thing God has done in the past, but we rejoice in all God has done for us. We rejoice in all God has done for us. We rejoice not just because God has done a great thing. We rejoice because God has done great things, plural. Now, Frankly, I'm not naturally a joyful person, but I've been working on it. I've been working on it a lot lately. Um, earlier this fall, I was able to be part of a pilot group with a Christian organization that's called Unstatus Your Quo. And they've developed a process to help Christ followers identify their purpose and take steps to live more fully in that purpose. In fact, this organization was actually started by two of our members here at Brick Hills, Charlie Haynes and Noah Whitaker. And they're going to be launching it online just this next month. But I was part of this pilot program and 
Toward the end, one of our takeaways was to try to identify two action steps that we could implement in our lives in order to help us grow in our abidance in Christ. And these were supposed to be two small things, easily achievable, not like New Year's resolutions that you abandon on the second day, but things you can do. I kept wanting to change big things, and Charlie kept reminding me, no, Chris, they got to be small, like you'll fail otherwise, which was a real boost of confidence. No, it was really helpful. So anyway, one of the things that I've been doing as I've been trying to express joyful gratitude to God for all the different things I see him doing in me and around me on a daily basis. And I try to do that in the moment whenever I recognize those things, but I've also begun keeping a list on my phone. Each day, I take time throughout the day to just reflect on those things that I've seen God doing and to thank him for it, to joyfully thank him for it, to rejoice in him for it. And so just my list from yesterday, it included some obvious things you might think of, like the Bible and uh, another day of life, a good night's sleep. Um, I have Liza, Story and Haven are on our list, which is good. Uh, you guys, our church was on our list, so thankful for you. Uh, but then there are other things on my list. It might not seem so obvious, things like coffee and uh, butter, <laughs> steak pie, lots of food things, honestly, are on the list. Uh, family game time was on yesterday. Running water, I particularly became aware of for some reason. No traffic during the Alabama game last night was awesome. So all kinds of things. As you can see, if I'm making lists of these things, these lists can get really, really long. And the result has been, as I reflect on these at the end of each day, I can't help but rejoice in all the things God has done. Now, not all of these might not be great things, but they are all ways that I see him actively at work in my life, through my life, and around me in the world in which I live. And I can't help then that my mouth literally at times is filled with laughter and my tongue with shouts of joy and even sometimes my eyes with tears. You know, the happy kind, of course. And I think that that type of practice is something that's beneficial for all of us because when we rejoice in all God has done for us, we rejoice for our good. We rejoice for our good. The pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, they sang together songs like this one because it was good for them. They remembered all that God had done for them and the effects, the benefits that they were still experiencing because of what he had done. That was helpful because it meant that they weren't dependent upon their present circumstances. No matter how good things were or how bad things they were, they could approach Jerusalem rejoicing in God for all he had done and for the benefits that they still experienced because of it. And I think that not only is beneficial for them, I think that's beneficial for us. That's a good practice for us. That's why we sing the songs that we do each week when we gather together. That some of you walk in this room completely overjoyed at all the blessings of God that you see in your life. And that's awesome. And so we give you words of praise to shout out to him. But we also don't want to be a church where everyone's faking it and pretending it, that it's just rainbows and roses all the time. We know that there are deep hurts and difficult struggles that some of you walk in this room each week today, not only not seeing God's blessing in your life, but wondering if God has turned his back on you completely. And so we give you the same words. We remind you again of those things that God has done of the blessings that you are still living in because of those things that he has done. And we remind you that though you may not recognize where he is currently working, he has always proved himself faithful to you and he will continue to do so. And so we rejoice for our good, but we also 
we rejoice for his glory. We remember all God has done for us, and we rejoice and we praise him together because he deserves it. He alone deserves it. Y'all, our life circumstances, they are fickle. But God, he is faithful. Our circumstances are ever-changing. But God, he is never-changing. He is great and greatly to be praised. And so we come together and we rejoice because he is worthy. And in doing so, and rejoicing in all God has done for us, we ascribe to him the glory that he alone possesses. But when we rejoice, we don't just rejoice for our good. We don't just rejoice even for his glory. Also, we rejoice for others' gain. We rejoice for others' gain. Remember, the people groups around the nation of Israel, they saw what had been done for them. They confessed the Lord has done great things for them, but this wasn't a confession of faith. It was just a recognition of what had happened. But then when God's people picked up the refrain, when they repeated it, the Lord has done great things for us, that is a confession of faith. And it's a testimony that the nations got it right, that what they saw was actually what had occurred. They're saying, yes, our God is God. He has done great things. He will do great things. And he can do great things for you too. This witness of words to the workings of God is vitally important. Because all of the people groups that surround God's people, all the people groups that surround us, they should be able to not only see God's work in our lives, they should be able to hear about God's work from our lips. So we rejoice. And that brings us to verse four, a verse that turns this song into a prayer. The song began its story when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, and here, In verse 4, God's people begin crying out to God together, Restore our fortunes, Lord. They're making a petition of him. They're asking him to do something. He's restored their fortunes in the past. They want him to restore their fortunes again in the present. In other words, what they're praying is, God, do great things again. You've done it before. We want to see you do it again. We want you to fill our mouths with laughter again. We want you to fill our tongues with shouts of joy again. We want you to do great things again. This isn't a moment of ingratitude on the part of God's people. They're certainly guilty of that throughout Scripture, but that's not what's happening here. They've just reminded one another of the great things God has done for them. They've remembered it. They've rejoiced in it. And that remembrance and that rejoicing, that's now fueling their prayers here. They were so overjoyed at what God had done for them that they're asking him to come in and do it again. Well, what exactly is it that they're asking him to do when they're asking him to restore their fortunes? Well, remember our footnote, beginning in verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, that means when the Lord returned those of Zion who were in captivity. Well, here in verse 4, we have another footnote. And so we can look down and we can see that another way to read it is return our captives. Instead of restore our fortunes, return our captives. And again, that's a much more faithful rendering of the original Hebrew in which this verse is written. Return our captives. That's what you did the first time. We want you to do that again, God. You see, when Cyrus signed his edict, allowing God's people to return to Jerusalem, not everyone went. 
Initially, about 50,000 did. That's a pretty big number. And then over the ensuing years, tens of thousands more came back to Jerusalem and to their homeland. But when God's people were hauled off into captivity, their population numbers were in the millions, which means most did not come. Though the way of redemption had been made by God, most were not restored with their brothers and sisters to their home. So while God's people were grateful and joyful for what he had done, they're asking him not to stop, to do those things again. Just as you redeemed and restored us, Lord, we want you to redeem and restore others. Return our captives, Lord. And they have a very specific thing in mind, a very specific way, a very specific picture of what that might look And so when they're praying here, they're not just asking God to do great things. They're asking him to do greater things, to do greater things. They prayed for God to restore their fortunes, to return their captives, but they asked him to do it like watercourses in the Negev. Now, the Negev, it's the arid southern region of Judah. It's basically just a desert and all throughout this desert region, there are all these dry creek beds that you will see. You'll notice the one in this picture because it's kind of marked by all the greenery that's around it. And the reason why is because for anything to be able to grow in this desert region, rains have to be sent in order to fill these creek beds full of water so that water can be provided for seeds to take root, to sprout, and then to survive. But when the rainy season comes and this happens, these creek beds are actually flooded with such a torrential force that it overflows the banks. And it comes in with such power that it destroys bridges, that it will knock over buses, drive them off roads as it overflows its banks. The picture here is of rain, of waters that come through these dry creek beds during the rainy season. They come through suddenly and they come through powerfully. And when they come through, it is overwhelming. And that's what God's people are asking God to do. Return our captives, God. Not just like you returned them in the first time. Return them in a way that is sudden, that is powerful, that is overwhelming. The road back from captivity is dried up, Lord. Your people are no longer returning, but we're asking you to do it again. And we're asking you to do it in such a way that that road is covered up with your people coming home so that everyone may look at it and again join with us in saying the Lord has done great things for them. That's what they're asking God to do. And Brook Hills, I want us to be a people who pray like that. We've been in captivity as well to our sin, but God didn't leave us there. He redeemed and restored us. And yet we are surrounded by people who are still living in that captivity to sin. And there are way too many in the church today that are A-okay with that status quo. They don't want to bother anybody. They don't rock the boat. They don't want to offend anyone. They are essentially living as universalists, just assuming that everyone's personal journey is going to lead them to wherever they need to go. But Brook Hills, let's not be like them. Let's not be like those. Let's be people who rejoice in all God has done for us so that others might hear. And let's pray and ask God to redeem and restore all those in sin's captivity and to do it in such a way that is sudden and powerful and overwhelming in a way that only he can. And we all just celebrated Christmas together a few days ago, a a celebration of the day in which God brought his rescue plan to fruition. And many of us, we celebrated that surrounded by fathers or mothers or brothers or sisters 
children, spouses, other family members that seem as far away from God as you can possibly get. But remember, you were once far from God as well. But he redeemed you. He restored you. And he brought you near. And he can do the same thing for them. So pray it for them. Pray it diligently for them. Pray it with perseverance for them. Pray it for them. Pray it for your neighbors. Pray it for the Huey. Pray it for the Bloats, the Arundo, for all those people groups who have yet to be reached with the gospel. Ask God to do great things again and to do greater things because he alone can and he alone has said he will. And then as we pray in this way, let's also hold to a promise. Let's hold to a promise. That's how this psalm closes out, with two verses that contain promise. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. It's using the picture of sowing and reaping, of planting and harvesting. But we shouldn't fall into the temptation to only interpret this as prayers for a good harvest, as promise of a good harvest, because that's not what it is. We need to look at it in light of what God's people had just been asking of him. Restore our fortunes, God. Return our captives, Lord. That his people who have been redeemed and restored, they are the ones who will be making appeals to those who are still in captivity, making those appeals through prayer, but also making those appeals through direct proclamation. They will be sowing in their lives the word of God, his promises of what he can and will do. And so when I read this, I can't help but think of Jesus' own parable of the sower, where the farmer goes out scattering his seeds that are the word of God. And many of them fall on soil in which they are choked out, that they cannot take root for a variety of reasons. But then some fall on good soil they do take root and they sprout and they produce fruit that is many times more than the amount of seed that was scattered, the amount of seed that was sown. And so that picture of sowing seeds of the gospel of Christ is not that different from the picture of the appeals that God's people would be making for those in captivity to return. And so in light of that, I want us to see three facets of this promise that's here in these final two verses. And the first one is this. Your sowing will be sorrowful. Your sowing will be sorrowful. When sowing the word of God, much of it falls on deaf ears. Much of it falls on hard hearts. It can feel like sowing into a barren wasteland. And that's actually the picture that's used here. Remember, the people just prayed for God to unleash his torrential power like the streams of the Negev. But absent of that, The picture is then the dryness of the land, planting those seed and absent another resource, having to water that seed with their tears. And I know that some of you know what that's like. Because as we talk about this, you have a name that comes to mind. You have a face that comes to mind. Someone you love, you deeply care about, that you have shared God's word with, that you've sown the gospel of Christ into their lives over and over and over and over and yet the seed does not take root. I know that you have shed tears over those loved ones, longing to see God redeem and restore them as he has done for you. And so keep going, keep sowing, because that sowing is meant to be sorrowful. It's sorrow over their sin. It's sorrow over their stubbornness. It's sorrow over the fruitlessness of the endeavor. 
but it's sorrowful because it's a struggle. It's hard work. But remember that what you are sowing is the word of God. And God's word has promised that it does not return empty. It accomplishes what he pleases and prospers in what he sends it to do. So though your sowing is sorrowful, do so anyway knowing that your harvest will be bountiful. Your harvest will be bountiful. They say here that though one goes out carrying a bag of seed, he will surely come back carrying not the bag but his sheaves. There will be a harvest, fruit of the labor. That's what Jesus promised when he explained the parable of the sowers to his disciples. He said, and those like seed sown on good ground hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what is sown. Now we're not guaranteed the redemption and restoration of those over whom we have shed our tears in trying to sow gospel seeds into their lives. But we are promised that if we will sow, there will be a harvest. God will do what he has said he will do. Not everyone with whom we share the gospel of Christ will receive it. Not everyone will hear it. Not everyone will believe it. But some will. Some. Somehow. They will. They too will believe and through their faith they will be redeemed and restored and they will join our ranks in sowing among others that they might hear, that they might believe, that they might then join our ranks in sowing and reaping the harvest and seeing others come to believe and on and on and on until it grows into such a force that we cannot deny that it is beyond what we could have dreamt, that God has done something sudden and powerful and amazing, overwhelming as only he can. I can't help but think how encouraging that must be for those we have sent out from among us to serve around the world. Our church planting teams, our long-termers, even Hunter and Megan that we're sending out today because they are going to serve in spiritual Negevs, dry, barren wastelands. They don't know how long they'll have to labor before they'll see fruit. They don't know long if they, they don't know if they actually will be able to see fruit. But they can go and they can faithfully labor knowing that God has promised there will be be a harvest. So let's join them in that work of sowing, holding to the promise that the harvest will be bountiful. And then after our seeds have been sown and our harvest, our bountiful, bountiful harvest has been reaped, God, he will bring us all to the home he has prepared for us and your homecoming will be joyful. Your homecoming will be joyful. God sends us into the fields of the world to sow the seeds of his word making appeal to the captives to find their freedom in him through faith in him. But of course, when God sends us, he doesn't sit back waiting for us to return. He goes before us. He goes with us. But then he also promises to bring us back, to dwell with him forever. And when he does, there will be no more sorrow, no more tears. But we will join together with all of heaven, with mouths of laughter, with tongues, with shouts of joy, rejoicing over all of our fortunes that God has restored.